Uh, okay, hello, hello everyone. Um, I'm Barak, and this is Rahul. Hi. Um, and welcome to our Optimized Interview podcast. This is the ischemia edition, and in particular, we'll be looking today uh, to talk about stable angina. Uh, this is, as you can imagine, an incredibly popular topic that comes up in interviews. And we're going to structure this in the following way. So first of all, we're going to talk about how to approach uh, the history of a patient with stable angina, what the key things one might need to know. Then we'll talk about uh, how to investigate stable angina. And of course, there's the uh, there's a lot of different ways to do this, and there's the nice recommended ways, and there's the ways that cardiologists might think about this. Then we'll talk a little bit about the management. And throughout all of this, we'll be peppering it with what are the what are things that you need to know? Um, and then more importantly, what are the pearls, those things that will get you a five out of five answer that really makes you seem like a cardiology registrar looking at these, looking at these patients uh, in our patient clinic. Uh, again, this won't be an exhaustive, uh, exhaustive uh, knowledge about exactly uh, everything about angina and how to manage it and an in-depth thing about all the tests, but we will be just talking uh, in brief about all the different sections and things that we use for the interviews. Uh, well, why don't you crack, crack on? Yeah, thank you, Barak. Um, so as Barak mentioned, the first thing is just about the, the basic underlying knowledge um, to then answer uh, a specific question. Um, so this whole uh, video is about angina. Uh, and the first thing uh, to start off with that I thought would be uh, the right thing to do would, would be to talk about the definition. Uh, so angina is a, a syndrome uh, characterized by chest pain caused by myocardial ischemia due to a supply-demand mismatch to the myocardium. Um, and the chest pain is characterized by being cardiac in quality, made worse by factors such as uh, exertion, cold, excitement, postprandial, and relieved by factors such as rest uh, or GTN within five minutes. Uh, so that's the, the definition. Um, and then when thinking about uh, trying to diagnose someone with angina, uh, one starts off with the history. Um, and when taking a history, the aims are essentially to, to establish if this is a more chronic stable condition or if they're kind of more acute things that are going on. Um, and uh, one can approach this in many ways, but uh, I think a good uh, way to do it is using the Socrates approach. Um, and uh, we won't go into uh, exhaustive detail, but a few, a few of the kind of discriminating factors uh, in the history for angina are uh, firstly the site. So typically it's retrosternal and it's described um, around the size of a fist, uh, classically. Uh, you'd also uh, want to know uh, when it started its onset. Uh, so uh, classically stable angina um, occurs on exertion um, and is relieved by rest. Um, but a, a key discriminating factor would be if it's occurring at rest uh, or if it's occurring kind of uh, with uh, less and less uh, effort, i.e. it's crescendoing in nature um, and how long it's lasting for. You'd also want to know about the character of the chest pain, if it's kind of a crushing uh, or a pressure or a squeezing quality, which might be suggestive of cardiac chest pain uh, rather than, for example, a more pleuritic uh, quality. Uh, if it radiates, so the arm, neck, the jaw, if you have any associated symptoms, so classically an autonomic response, so are people uh, feeling uh, sweaty and clammy uh, um, 
with the pain, uh, um, if it's uh, relieved or exacerbated by anything. So uh, classically stable angina is relieved by GTN uh, or rest uh, and exacerbated by exertion, colds, uh, post a large meal, and then how severe the chest pain is. So that's kind of the, uh, the, the classic uh, history one would take, um, uh, listing the nature of the chest pain. Um, you'd also want to know about vascular risk factors. So does the patient have high blood pressure, diabetes, cholesterol? Do they smoke? Uh, is there a family history of um, MI or stroke under 55? Um, they're kind of the hard vascular risk factors. Um, um, uh, other ones would be their ethnicity. Do they have chronic kidney disease? Do they have, a, are they, do they have obesity? These are other risk factors. Linked in with that would then be their past medical history, uh, their drug history, and specifically in the drug history, are they on uh, tablets like a NOAC? Do they take uh, sildenafil? Uh, do they have any allergies? For example, to contrast, that would be relevant potentially down the line if you're thinking about an angiogram. Um, moving on to their social history, uh, specifically, do they take any illicit drugs like cocaine, um, which may also be causing a cause of coronary vasospasm? So that's the important points in the history. Anything to add, Balric, from that? No, I think that was uh, fantastic. Very exhausting. I think uh, the important thing to think about, obviously, in the interviews, uh, you won't have that much time to go through everything here. Um, so I think the key things to pick out when you're dealing with a patient with uh, postmangina is to, first of all, try and elicit whether it's cardiac chest pain. Um, and the key things, the absolute key things there are, is it cardiac in nature? Does it radiate to the uh, shoulder or to the jaw, which is a very specific sign? Uh, and is it associated, most important thing, is, is it associated with exercise? And I think you, if you can get that across in your interview uh, that you know uh, about the key, key discriminators of cardiac chest pain, it's very, very important. Um, and I think it's incredibly important, as Rahul said, the other things to say is, once you know it's associated with exercise, is this getting worse? Is this crescendo in nature? And do I, do I need to be more worried um, about this patient and possibly thinking about crescendo angina and the need to think about early urgent investigation or admitting this patient? And especially about whether this patient has uh, now having rest pain, um, which is incredibly important a, with regards to admitting this patient uh, and also think about other things such as uh, driving advice and DVLA. Uh, I think the other thing to pick out is Autonomic response, quite, quite a nice word to use is diaphoretic, uh, which means sweating. So if you can say, yeah, what I want to know is that does a patient have cardiac chest pain and is there any other associated um, symptoms such as shortness of breath or diaphoresis? That's quite a nice phrase to use. Uh, and finally, incredibly important to talk about the risk factors, but I think one nice pearl to bring out is knowing that cocaine, cocaine use uh, in general has two problems. One, it causes accelerated uh, coronary artery disease and um, so it puts you at far higher risk of heart attacks at a young age and in the acute phase causes coronary vasospasm so it can also uh, cause heart attacks on already established accelerated coronary artery disease so that's a good thing to know a good thing to bring out from the history for a patient with stable angina. Great great thanks Barrick. Um, so next would be examination um, and in an interview format one would uh, typically go down the line of uh, describing that you'd assess the patient in an A to E uh, assessment. Um, and then you'd move on to a focused kind of cardiorespiratory examination, 
trying uh, in, in the context of stable angina, uh, trying to elicit evidence of those risk factors that we discussed. So do they have uh, evidence of hypercholesterolemia, hyperlipidemia with xanthalasma, corneal arcus, a high BMI? Uh, you'd want to assess for hypertension with a blood pressure check. Um, you'd also want to assess for any potential complications from ischemic heart disease. So for example, is there evidence of decompensated heart failure? And from your examination, you're also trying to elicit differentials as well that might be masquerading uh, as stable angina. So do they have a classic ejection systolic murmur that, that might suggest an LVOT obstruction or aortic stenosis? Um, and of course, one needs to be holistic if you suspect a non-cardiorespiratory cause. You'd additionally do musculoskeletal, gastrointestinal and, and neurological examinations too. Um, yeah, I, th I think that's, uh, that's fantastic. Um, I think the things again that I'd probably pick out there is say, I think with all interview answers, you kind of want to give uh, an understanding or a rationale to the examiner that there's a reason you're doing this uh, and that you're not just doing every single thing under the sun. So as you said, you mentioned very briefly one sentence, ATE approach, but focused cardiorespiratory examination, looking for risk factors such as xanthalasma uh, and signs of diabetes or peripheral, peripheral vascular disease. And then importantly, as you said, looking for an ejection systolic murmur, um, which might give you sign, which might point you towards AS, which could be another cause of their symptoms, uh, and signs of heart failure, um, which may indicate the patient's uh, got other cardiovascular issues or previous heart attack. The other thing I might um, add to that is you probably at this point want to, yeah, I think it's really nice if you say from this history and examination, um, you really also want to try and get an idea for the patient's um, physiological reserve, because uh, that really kind of points you towards how aggressively you're going to be trying to manage their angina. I, are they even suitable for uh, interventional approach? So you might say on the examination, I focus on uh, their, their cardiac, cardiac status, uh, and that might help me understand whether they'd be suitable, what kind of investigations uh, and management they'd be suitable for. But yeah. Okay, cool. Um, okay, so we've talked about history and examination, uh, and then to gain a more specific diagnosis, um, you'd want to supplement that with further investigations. Um, so the first thing I'd start off by doing is a 12 lead ECG, uh, and that's looking for changes consistent with, ang with angina. Um, so that might include uh, left ventricular hypertrophy, uh, reflective of cardiac remodeling, uh, Q wave suggestive of a previous MI, an LV strain pattern. Um, I'd also wanna do some blood tests, so a full blood count, for example, looking for evidence of anemia that may be causing exertion or chest pain, kidney function, liver function tests, a BMP, and then thinking about those risk factors, vascular risk factors, HbA1c, cholesterol and fasting lipids. Uh, you'd want to do a chest x-ray, uh, particularly looking for evidence of uh, heart failure and a transthoracic echo. Um, uh, and factors you may be looking for on there uh, would include uh, regional wall motion abnormalities suggestive of coronary ischemia. Uh, again, thinking about mimics for chest pain, as we discussed, is there evidence of aortic stenosis? Is there evidence of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy? Is there evidence of a mitral valve prolapse? Um, you'd also, uh, if there is evidence of ischemic heart disease, want to assess the LV function as a, as a prognostic indicator too. Uh, so they're the initial investigations that, that one would do for stable angina. I think that's, uh, yeah, I 
haven't got too much to add to that, I think that's perfect. I think the, the key things you want to preface your investigations with is saying that I'll be doing investigations to look for uh, the presence of other risk factors. And I think you have a really good panel there of uh, the fasting lipids, HO and C, et cetera. And importantly, we want to be suggesting that they're modifiable as well. Uh, some modifiable risk factors um, that we can improve as cardiologists because I think that's a very nice touch because it shows you're not just focused on treating a coronary disease, but you're also trying to think about how you can prevent progression of disease, which I think a lot of candidates miss out. Uh, and then, yeah, the ECG might tell you about previous heart attacks, but the other important thing is, uh, as, with most, as with most cardiac conditions, is, is an echo. Uh, and the main reason for that is actually to look for, yeah, as you said, other mimics. And I think if you can be saying that phrase, other mimics that might be causing their chest pain, I think it's uh, clearly showing you have a good level of understanding of uh, stable angina and the other things that could be going on. So always keep an open mind. Okay, fantastic. Um, so uh, after that initial set of investigations, um, one would then consider further specialist investigations. Um, and that's really based on whether you believe there is a low, intermediate, or high risk of coronary artery disease. And secondly, whether the patient has had a previous MI. So the first thing is, if you think there's a low uh, risk or, uh, and there's no history of uh, coronary artery disease, um, then a CT coronary angiogram would be the recommended first-line investigation as a good rule-out test for coronary artery disease. Um, and the usefulness of this test is it's highly sensitive, uh, but less specific. Um, so it's less useful, uh, firstly, if, if we know that there's a history of coronary artery disease, because um, it is, it's more likely to uh, show things up, uh, and then further investigations would be needed to characterize that. Um, and so uh, it would be less useful in that circumstance. If the patient's in AF, um, just one thing to note, it's harder to gate the scan. So that would be something that, uh, again, you may choose against doing a CT coronary angiogram uh, if they are in AF. Um, and if they have a known high calcium score, so they've had previous imaging, uh, this will actually uh, give more artifact. Um, now, if there is a history of coronary artery disease um, and you don't think they're low risk, they're more intermediate risk, and it's not really a, a clear cut shut case of them having a very high risk, then you can consider a functional test. And there are various functional tests that are uh, recommended by the ESC and NICE. Uh, they include a stress uh, ECG. Uh, and one thing to note with the stress ECG is uh, you may not use that if they have an abnormal resting ECG, um, as that would uh, affect uh, changes seen um, when doing the test. Uh, a stress echocardiogram, um, and that can include pharmacological or exercise stress, a myocardial perfusion scan, so a nuclear medicine scan, a stress cardiac MRI, and fractional flow reserve CT. And uh, there's a lot of uh, potential options uh, and the choice of test is really uh, based on a number of factors. So number one, uh, it always has to be patient focused. Uh, logistically, it's often based on local availability and wait times. Um, and also one considers cost as well um, when, when making the decision. Um, and finally, if they're a very high risk patient, um, uh, one might discuss with their consultant about uh, performing uh, directly an invasive coronary angiogram, uh, because the probability of them having uh, coronary disease is so high. Barrick, anything to add to that? 
Uh, no, I think that's that's really good actually. I think the um, the key factors when you're investigating, I think the a little bit about the history behind this is that <coughs> the car cardiologists used to use um, pretest probability, and as you said, go for a CTCA if there's a low pretest probability, uh, and look at functional tests if you have an intermediate to high pretest probability and a angiogram if you have a very high pretest probability, i.e., you're fairly convinced this patient's got angina. Um, NICE have come through and said actually first line for everyone is a CTCA um, and that's NICE recommended uh, but cardiologists obviously if you have a if you have a 75 year old lady with diabetes they're likely to have a lot of calcium in their coronary arteries already so a CTCA probably isn't a fantastic test uh, a disc fantastic discriminatory test for this kind of patient because it will just show up lots of calcium and it won't be able to rule out coronary artery disease at which, which point the patient will come back to you with an indeterminate test just saying lots of calcium and then you have to go for another test which you if you're using ESE guidelines you would have done in the first place so I think it's really important to have a an idea of the background here to what tests can be used in stable angina and which ones to use where so I think as you said low risk CTCA very good good rule out test um, I think the next things to appreciate and uh, just a few little bits and bobs at uh, each of the tests here I think a treadmill ECG, so for patients, can, can run. It's a very uh, quick test and very low risk test and very cheap. So I think those are the positives about that one. The uh, or exercise echocardiogram, which I think is, if you can get someone to physiologically exercise rather than having to pharmacologically stress their heart out, I think that's the, uh, the, best, the, the best option. So an exercise echo is uh, a very good option to look for. Uh, induced bit ischemia and then after that you know a dobutamine stress echo is very very reasonable um i think stress mri is useful but the caveat to that is if a patient's got a pacemaker for example you get a lot of artifact uh, and i like your point about af um, for patients who are in cardiac cts their heart rate needs to be ideally uh, sinus and less than 60 so they need to take beta blockers prior to the uh, ctca so if they've got very brittle asthma uh, they won't be able to have a CTCA. And then finally, the myocardial perfusion scan, the real cohort of patients that I kind of leave that scan for are those patients that have got AF and have a pacemaker because a, uh, AF makes it sometimes slightly difficult to look for uh, to do, do the dobutamine uh, stress echo because of the length of time between the beats. Um, and if they've got a pacemaker, the artifact can... Uh, influence the ability to get good MRI images. So those are the patients I would be useful with myocardial perfusion scans. Um, so yeah, I think just having a few bits of knowledge about each test is worthwhile, but a very nice early functional test is the exercise ECG, if they've got a normal resting ECG. Um, and again, if you just bring one or two of these tidbits out in your, into your answer, I think it shows that you've a far higher knowledge of these tests than just on just basically MRCP, MRCP syllabus. So that's a really worthwhile thing to do that will point you to a five out of five answer. Okay, great. Um, so finally, management uh, of stable angina. Um, Ooh, actually, sorry, I just want to mention one more thing. I think if you're, uh, by the time you're ordering tests for a patient uh, that are potentially invasive, uh, this is a this is the point in which I'd probably say in your interview, so I would admit, my recommendation would be this, and I would, you know, run that past my consultant, CP editing, thoughts. 
I think that's the point which you can, especially before you're doing an invasive angiogram. Mm. Agreed, agreed. Um, thanks, Barry. Uh, so uh, next would be management. Uh, so um, one can uh, split this into conservative medical and surgical aspects of management. Um, and the aims here uh, are ensuring a that uh, it's patient centered, it's holistic and and it's typically achieved using an MDT approach. Um, so if we talk about conservative management aspects for now, um, so the first thing to mention is patient education on their condition, but also what's really important are red flags for when they need to seek medical attention. So, for example, with stable angina, it would be chest pain at rest or crescendoing of the chest pain. So it occurring on much less uh, minimal exertion and more frequently. Uh, one would also uh, educate patients on, on lifestyle changes that they can make. Um, so this can include moderate intensity exercise, uh, trying to optimize those uh, uh, modifiable risk factors aggressively. Uh, so smoking cessation, minimizing alcohol, uh, optimizing their diet, uh, treating diabetes, treating obstructive sleep apnea, another independent risk factor for worsening uh, stable angina and coronary artery disease. Um, so that's a flavor of the conservative management. Um, and then moving on to medical management. Um, so an antiplatelet uh, would be aspirin as, as first line. Uh, one would also introduce a statin, uh, A, if they have a raised cholesterol, or B, if their Q risk score is greater than 10%. Uh, one would also prescribe PRN, uh, GTN spray, uh, if the patient was to develop uh, symptoms of chest pain. Uh, and then one can think about anti-anginal treatment. Uh, so the first line treatment would be a beta blocker or a non-hydropyridine calcium channel blocker. Uh, if chest pain, well, sorry, symptoms were to persist, uh, one can then combine a beta blocker with a dihydropyridine calcium channel blocker. Uh, and then after that, you're given some options. Um, so you can use uh, long-acting nitrates, uh, and then uh, classically, they're described as the others. Um, so that includes uh, evabridine, uh, a funny type uh, sodium channel blocker. And the uh, couple of key points of evabridine, uh, you need to be in sinus rhythm because it acts um, on the funny type sodium channels at the pacemaker. Um, so sorry, the sinoatrial node pacemaker. Uh, certain side effects to uh, kind of notes with evabridine, uh, it's a QTC prolonger. Uh, it can give uh, temporary luminous phenomenon um, and you can't be lactose intolerant when you take it. Uh, and it can also cause liver impairment. Uh, Renolazine is one of the others. Uh, it's a sodium channel blocker. Uh, the main kind of thing that, uh, to my mind that uh, I consider is it's a QTC prolonger. Uh, the advantage of it uh, is it has less of a blood pressure lowering effect. Uh, and nicarandil, a uh, potassium channel activator, the main side effects to consider are it can cause a headache, it can cause oral ulcers, and it can be a, a blood pressure lowerer um, as well. And then, so that's kind of a flavor of the medical treatments. Um, and then finally, interventional or surgical options. So they're indicated here if, you're on two anti-anginal treatments, but symptoms persist, or if there's prognostically significant coronary artery disease, which has been 
under fire from your investigations. So if you've done a CTCA and there's a left main stem or proximal LAD stenosis, um, it is indicated. If you've done a stress cardiac MRI and there's greater than 10% of the myocardium that's affected, showing inducible ischemia. Uh, similarly, on a myocardial perfusion scan, um, if there's greater than 10% of the myocardium affected, on a stress echo, if uh, three out of the 17 segments show inducible ischemia, um, and the very uh, significant uh, kind of prognostic uh, factor is if there's left ventricular dysfunction uh, with identified coronary artery disease, again, that may be another indicator uh, to uh, uh, have an interventional approach, which could include PCI or um, coronary artery bypass grafting. Yeah, I think that's a that's a really really exhaustive uh, uh, exhaustive lowdown of what one needs to know about management of uh, angina. <laughs> really good points about the renalazine uh, and the average. So those I really didn't know. Uh, so we, I think, just a, a kind of flavour to approaching uh, management angina. I think you're right, conservative medical and surgical, um, and I think it's what you'd probably I mean, if you don't, if people don't already know, there's a lot of controversy about uh, interventional management of stable angina um, and whether it's that useful, um, both for patients' symptoms, uh, quality of life, and also whether it has any prognostic effect on mortality. And if anyone wants more reading, the Orbiter trial and the various editorials that have come out of that are uh, good areas to read on about uh, angina and what we should be doing about it. Uh, for an interview, for the sake of the interview, the things I'd mention are uh, absolutely the modifiable risk factors. I think we, I think you don't need to go on into much depth about it, but if you can just maybe say one thing, so I might say I think it's very important to first to educate the patient on what this, what having angina and coronary disease means, uh, what it could mean for the future, uh, and what we can modify. And so, for example, if their diet is an issue, I might put them in touch uh, with our local. Uh, cardiovascular nurses or nutritionists or if they've got anything local with their GPs and then I'd move on because you don't want to dwell too much but just show some level of understanding of specific things you can think about um, then, and then yeah exactly that I talk about management I think one just key thing to remember if you talk about dihydropyridine and non-dihydropyridine calcium channel blockers um, so beta blockers cannot be used with non-dihydropyridine non-dihydropyridine calcium channel blockers. Essentially, that's beta blockers and verapamil, uh, beta blockers and diltiazem cannot be used together because there's a, an increased risk, of, increased risk of going into complete heart block. Um, so beta blockers can be used with amlodipine uh, as a dihydropyridine uh, calcium channel blocker, but uh, not the non-dihydropyridines. Uh, so beta blockers, fantastic to start with. They can lower the blood pressure. Amlodipine, fantastic uh, anti-angino, I think, and it has less of an effect on uh, dizziness and blood pressure than beta blockers. Uh, so that's one thing to note. And then I think you said really nice points about all the other medications. And I think if they're asking you questions on angina and medical management, uh, it probably won't be absolutely straightforward. So they might say, okay, the patient comes back and they're developing some dizziness or they're very bradycardic. What do you do next? So it's good just to know a few options. So ISMN um, or a long acting which is a long-acting nitrate, will drop the blood pressure, uh, whereas, as you said, renalazine will have less effect. So it's just good to have that in your armory of things to switch switch back and forth to. Uh, 
and then yeah interventional management of angina uh i think the key indication for interventional management of angina is prognostic disease which is yeah as you mentioned or uh heart failure and if you do it for symptom benefits uh that's uh more controversial but yeah it is it is it is done um that's uh only in those patients who absolutely got symptoms that cannot be controlled uh this is one tidbit for angina if you ever want to mention it is for those patients that have got uh ongoing angina despite being fully revascularized uh there is this phenomenon phenomenon of microvascular angina uh which cannot be treated with stents and the only proven therapy uh, which isn't widely available to help this is something called a coronary sinus reducer uh, so as a absolute final last gasp thing you might want to say you say you know we get an interventional route if there are really no other options uh, and they've been fully, fully revascularized and they're still getting uh, very typical angina with no relief for medical therapy a coronary sinus reducer uh, is one thing that could be considered but the evidence is uh, limited with only one randomized control trial uh, but I'll leave that I'll leave that up to you but I think the important thing with angina I think as Rahul says cover the cover the basics and then bring in one a few uh, a few tidbits for each section and um, that really make you stand you out as a five out of five candidate because this is an area where most candidates will know how should know how to manage stable angina so it's really important to think about how you're going to uh bring yourself to the fore and make yourself stand out because the examiners will have heard a lot of cardiac chest pain history and standard investigations so if you can know a bit about which investigation and when uh the key things and the bonus things about the history like cocaine uh and then finally you know a few bits about management and which ones to use when then you're working at the level of a cardiology approach which is what they want i don't know have you got anything else what do you no think? no um uh, I you know I agree with that sentiment. Um, yeah, uh, and hopefully this uh, kind of knowledge video has provided you with some of those tidbits, essentially, just to just to differentiate yourself. Um, and hopefully, it's you it's given a flavour of what what you need to know, essentially, uh, for this scenario. Perfect. Uh, great. And so next, we'll, uh, there's, there'll, there'll be some scenarios uh, below for you to look at. So uh, feel free to uh, watch those. Thanks very much, guys.